Dude, he was right. They shoved a bunch of shit up his anus, dude. Mm-hmm. Like it was like oh, that's real. Right. The whiskey, yeah. Yeah, yeah they whiskey. shoved a bunch of shit up his anus and killed him, like the yeah. president. Mm-hmm. Gato said, <laughs> "I, I shot him. The doctors killed him." Dude, <laughs> totally vindicated as always. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown them, but they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, and the other two hosts pick movies to watch in response to that topic. Maybe they meet the topic, or maybe they... Buck up against the topic. You never know what you're going to get here on the gauntlet. It was my turn to pick the theme this week, and uh, this all started with a conversation I had with my dear colleague, Andy, in the uh, alley down at, you know, Wabash and Jackson, as we're often, you know, hanging out in the alley, like upstanding Chicagoans that we are. Uh, and, And somehow we started talking about assassination movies. And this really got me fired up. And I subsequently, as I mentioned last episode, watched John Sturgis's The Eagle Has Landed, in which a group of ragtag Nazis try to assassinate Winston Churchill. And so I've just been like thinking about assassination. And even more broadly than that, I was also thinking like, why? I really do like movies about about assassinations. Uh, And other than, you know, the obvious reasons, I was thinking like, you know, my dad, God bless him, uh, really got me early on the assassination train because I think like two of the most formative experiences I had watching movies as a kid was in the line of fire, of course, you know, with uh, with our pal Clint Eastwood and, and John Malkovich. And for some reason, like he thought this was a normal thing to show a child in the 90s, uh, Fred Zinnemann's The Day of the Jackal. And he subsequently gave me the book as well, which I like read in middle school. So I'm like reading The Day of the Jackal, like when I was 14 or whatever. So I think like <laughs> ever since then, I've, I've kind of had a, a taste for uh, this kind of fiction, you know, this very like high stakes, tense kind of kind of stuff. So uh, that's what I asked you guys to bring me and and to be clear to uh, our audience I was strict this time out usually I'm pretty laissez-faire about the topic but I told them this is not about assassins this is about assassinations you know of like famous or important people right so uh, this isn't Charles Bronson in the mechanic it's oh actually it's it's Charles Bronson in in something else but um <laughs> Anyway, without any further ado, <laughs> we'll dive into all of this. Ryan, you had the earlier film, so uh, why don't you kick us off here? Well, 
if you listen very carefully, that's the sound of a red bond alert coming in uh, through, through the airwaves here on the gauntlet. We, we are about as close as we can be to a full-on bond alert without picking a film with James Bond in it or, or just a film with Pierce Brosnan or Timothy Dalton in it. Instead, I brought a film directed by Peter R. Hunt. Peter Hunt known for directing on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is like, you know, the nerdy Bond freak, kind of like me, who would say like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's secretly one of the great ones. That's that's the good one. Uh, maybe maybe not a hot take anymore. I think everyone really loves the skiing in that movie. You know, that's a Soderbergh's really... favorite as well, because yeah. he likes the, the hunt editing. And, and to be honest, so do I. Yes. Yeah, it's a really kinetic film. It's a really exciting film. And the film that I brought today um, is not a kinetic film. It is not an exciting film. And it is the film of a, you know, an old man who's sleeping and fading away. Um, and uh, it, on more levels than one, beyond the director and also sort of including the star. Uh, and as Marsh had mentioned, that is Charles Bronson. So the film that I selected, titled Assassination from 1987, was... Uh, in many respects, the end of things for a lot of people who were involved. It was Peter Hunt's final film. It was the final film of the screenwriter. It was the final film of Chris Alcade, one of the actors in it. He plays like the Chief Justice. He's like an old Hollywood guy. And it was the final film that was both starring Charles Bronson and his wife. Jill Ireland. Jill Ireland had just returned to acting after her first bout with breast cancer, and this film was supposed to be a comeback of sorts for her to showcase that she could still perform, she still had the energy to be on set. And in many respects, this film does end up being a little bit interesting because of that. I've long been very interested in Charles Bronson, and particularly the films that star Charles Bronson and his wife, Jill Ireland. They loved each other a lot. And very often in their films, they hate each other, the characters they play. And to me, that's just fascinating. I honestly think that a lot of these films starring Bronson and Jill Ireland are sort of like elaborate sexual role play. You know, they're, they're teasing each other, they're ripping each other a new one, and it all feels like they're just getting a rush out of it. And to be honest, it's really pleasant sometimes. So this film, Charles Bronson plays Killy Killian, who is sort of like an old school bodyguard for for the president um, and other members of, of the White House. And, you know, Reagan's on his way out. He, he, he really misses being Nancy Reagan's bodyguard because now he has to be the bodyguard for Jill Ireland. Uh, and I forgot to write down her character's name, but I'm going to refer to her as Jill Ireland for, for the rest of the episode because uh, it's... Flotus, dude. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One mama. They keep calling her one mama. <laughs> they do. It's they call true. her one mama. We could call her one mama throughout that's the episode. That's her code I, name. Man. Yeah, I think that's fine. So Bronson is tasked, Killy Killian is, is tasked with protecting one mama, the first lady of the United States. And boy, oh boy, she is not Nancy Reagan. She, she's not easy to handle. And as the, the film goes on, we start to realize there may be an assassination plot on the First Lady of the United States. That's what, what Killy Killian starts suspecting. And she, you know, she throws that idea out of her head. She, she's very much a free spirit. She doesn't follow the routines of the security forces being set up at the White House. She wants to kind of go and do her own thing. And as the film progresses, we start to learn why, that perhaps 
this marriage to the president could be for show, or she, you know, had an arrangement where she could sort of just live out her life, um, you know, with the benefit of having some some White House connections involved with that. But I'm not going to get too knee deep into that. Regardless, the plot of this film is Killy Killian trying to protect the first lady. This is a Canon Films production, and you know I think it's really important to point out that this is a PG-13 Canon production with Charles Bronson, which is a bit disappointing. It really does lack the edge of many of the more perverse entries in the Charles Bronson Canon filmography. But there's also something about this film that I did find strangely kind of nice, as I mentioned, sort of the role playing between Bronson and, and Jill Ireland as they pretend to hate each other when in reality they, they did have what seems to be an extremely deep affection and, and love, lovely marriage. Um, it's a very sleepy film. It, 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 it's, uh, it's Bronson looks quite old in it. You know, this is really when things were starting to turn. 1987. This is when he he was not as uh, not as, as sharp looking. Um, I still think he's rather distinguished in it. But you know, you get you still get a good amount of Bronson on a motorbike, Bronson with bazookas. You know, but um, the road trip that the two of them take, presumably throughout the country, as they claim, but it's very clearly just in and around Los Angeles, still has its charms, and I had fun. So. I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of, of this thing a little bit later. But that's Assassination from 1987. Thank you very much. Andy, why don't you tell us about what you brought? I was really racking my brain this, this week. Um, I'm quite a fan of assassination cinema, assassination stories as well. I've been fascinated with them. Since I was a wee lad as well, Marsh and my father sat me down in front of the very same pictures you described um, in your introduction. So, yeah, privy as well to the conversation you mentioned uh, that we were having about these types of films and throwing out other titles. You know, I really, when it came down to to picking one, I, I sort of thought like, man, I've... I know these films. I was looking at a lot of the more conventional, more traditional, uh, you know, kinds of movies you could pick for the topic. And, and I felt, ah, this is, you know, well-covered ground for us. And, and partly because, you know, we had just sort of had this really big discussion of them. So I was really pushing myself to, to dig deeper, to, to find something that would be a little bit more unexpected, an oddball choice. And, and as I was, you know, pushing myself to, to keep digging, go further, go deeper, you know, and, and get much more conspiratorial perhaps with what I, could, what I could bring to the Gauntlet Studios, it suddenly smacked me in the face. It hit me like a Mack truck. The film that I chose is 1998's Bullworth. Written, produced, directed by, and starring the one and only Warren Beatty. For those who don't know about Bullworth, this is a film set in 1996 during the primary season for that year's presidential election. As a title card informs us at the very beginning, 
Bob Dole has secured the Republican nomination for president. Bill Clinton has also secured the Democratic nomination unopposed. The public is a bit disenchanted, shall we say, with this upcoming election. And in the midst of it all, we have incumbent California Senator Jay Billington Bullworth, played by Warren Beatty, who is seeking yet another term in office. And our story begins here, the final weekend of the primary campaign. Bullworth is sitting in his office looking at the rushes for his campaign commercials and he is weeping he is sobbing perhaps we're treated as well to all these photographs on the wall you know this really interesting sort of mix of these these horrible horrible just absolute garbage campaign ads you know the most cliche bullshit you can imagine and we're seeing them over and over again but we're also seeing pictures of great political icons and black activists you know the 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 powerhouse of the american left and we really get the sense that Bullworth is sort of looking at these commercials, looking at where he's wound up, a very now uh, centrist Washington stooge, and he just hates himself. He is filled with such pain and, and self-loathing at, at the, the ideals of what began his career in politics. And now, here in America in 1996 like where we fucking actually are. So he decides he's got to die. <laughs> he's got to die. Uh, and this coward who wants to commit suicide certainly cannot pull it off by himself. So he arranges for his own assassination. He hires a a sort of shady figure, a man named Vinny. And that's really like the, the basic setup for then a mad cap uh, unhinged uh, breakdown that Bullworth is 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 going to experience in this final weekend when he he more or less has signed his own death warrant, like literally, basically, right? Like he has arranged for his own assassination, and perhaps feeling that he has now nothing left to live for, he has nothing left to lose. And as he goes from, from campaign stop to, to campaign stop, he just starts unleashing, unleashing all of his pent-up frustration and, you know, self-hatred and just is throwing it out to the public, to C-SPAN, to anyone and everyone that encounters him. Uh, and, you know, I think the thing that is is perhaps like most uh, wild in all of this is that while encountering a group of fiery young citizens in a black church, he has this kind of awakening. Uh, and this awakening leads him to start rapping. Not only is he spitting fire in his words, he is he is throwing down rhymes, 
And as everyone around him starts to think, like, man, this guy's losing his mind, uh, he starts to suddenly find another reason to live in all of this. Uh, and then has to dodge the assassination attempt that he himself has arranged for himself. Uh, it is Warren Beatty really just, just it's, it's really kind of an opportunity in all of this for Warren Beatty to just say whatever the fuck he wants about America, about politics, about healthcare, about Hollywood. It is Warren Beatty's uh, um, diss track. A diss track. Yeah, that is the best <laughs> way to put it. I, I I cannot believe it's been so long since I revisited this movie, and I'm I'm so glad that this topic came up to to bring this particular film, this this really weird sort of inversion of an assassination film, because I think it's just also one of the great American like political satires. Um, it's it's such an incredible movie, and I watched it twice for this podcast. That's how much <laughs> I loved revisiting this movie. I think it goes so goddamn hard. It looks crazy. It 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 is crazy, and it is it is crazy good. So I'm so 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 happy to bring this one to the table. That is. Bullworth. Thank you very much, Andy. Well, you know, I was thinking about this because, of course, uh, I think both of these films weren't exactly what what I suspected, uh, which means that then I had to, in my mind, start theorizing about assassination films. And I was thinking, really, there's kind of like two kinds you focus on the assassin or assassins and it's sort of like a heist film, right? This kind of like adventure process thing where it's like going through all these steps, you know, the guy screwing the, the silencer on, you know, locking up hotel rooms, like traveling, like the jackal, right? Uh, and on the other hand, there's the other strain of assassination movies that focus on the potential victims of these assassinations, right? And so instead of being, you know, more like a heist film or whatever, it's more of a, a thriller and often a, a paranoid one at that, especially when, when people realize that they're trying to be assassinated, right? Uh, and that's what you guys both really brought me. Of course, Bullworth has, you know, that twi the twist that he is also the one doing, uh, you know, he's both, right? He's assassin and uh, assassinated. Um, but both of them, yeah, focus on on that, right? The, the prevention of the assassination. And, you know, obviously I think they, they take two very different approaches. Uh, these films... I think, you know, don't don't have a ton in common, although I'm sure we'll find quite a few things. But I guess like superficially and on the surface, I think the funniest thing for me was like these are like right wing, left wing <laughs> films very, yeah. ex very explicitly. Uh Assassination is very much a Reagan-era canon film. Uh, there is just an incredible amount of, of chatter that uh, I think, you know, a lot of people t today would take offense to. Um, and specifically the sort of portrayal of, of Jill Ireland's character as this, like, oh, she's a nut. She wants to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, like that kind of stuff. It's like, mm. Jesus Christ, you know? Like, we really are, you know, in Reagan's world in that movie. 
and then in Bullworth, we're in the mind of a man who lived through the 60s and 70s and was politically active from the left and reacting to that. So that's like the the immediate thing that really like stood out to me in terms of these sort of constructions. Yeah. One seems like oblivious to the state of politics in America and the other <laughs> is is like absolutely like you know enraged by them uh fed up with them can't can't help but confront them uh at every turn you know i think that's that's certainly one way to 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 bring them into conversation right that that i i just kept throughout assassination like feeling like you know th- this could have been anything you know it could have been any any kind of like executive like protection kind of thing right but it just so happened to be the first lady and yet you know it's it's rather light on politics or political implications and then of course when we even find out what might be at the core for this assassination uh <laughs> <I> just <laughs> like I, I it saved the movie. I'll put it that way. For me, it saved the movie that that yes. was the reason. Because you know, I think that's that's one of the keys for assassination films is is right. Like if if a public figure, if someone of great prominence is going to be taken out, there's usually like this 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 you know nefarious plot or or uh, you know serious political grievances uh, of some kind. You know that there's there's. There's like a theory, there's a really important like theory behind it, you know, <laughs> and and I guess like both of these films are are you know kind of like ridiculous in the sense that like yeah you know why do these people need to be killed and in in the case of assassination I don't want to spoil it just yet because I think we'll we'll get there yeah, we'll and get it, there. it's it's awesome <laughs> but yeah in Bullworth you know it's just this guy that's just basically like kill me now this all sucks and i'm a part of this it's just i just want out of it right you know he's not trying to like overturn anything he's just simply trying to remove himself from from this world from the 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 state of america in 1996 or in the late 90s for that matter and and it's it's only like after that it's only after he's basically resigned himself to just like getting out that suddenly, you know, he finds a reason, uh, he finds politics again, but only after he's basically like, you know, admitted that he's, he's useless, that he's worthless, really. Well, I think it's funny that what you'd expect, especially when considering this like left-right situation with these two films is of course a canon production from the 80s it's going to be right leaning and it's going to be like aggressive in that sense but i was surprised watching it that it was a very relaxed conservatism you know it's really not shoving it down your throat like as compared to something as frightening as kinjite forbidden subjects like that bronson movie mm-hmm. and then i thought it was funny that it's like yes okay like bad politics but like kind of whatever and then bullworth is good politics but strangely more cringe 
I mean, I guess not strangely. Like, there is so much of Bullworth that is so cringe, but it's kind of remarkable because of that. Like, it was it's so loose and just so unabashed about its expression of its own ideas and, you know, what Warren Beatty's mind might have been like over the decades. But I think something you've both highlighted that to me is a really key connection between the two films, right, is this initial death wish of sorts between the targets of the assassinations. It's very literalized in Bullworth because Bullworth himself places the hit on his life. He orders his own assassination. And then the joke being in Assassination, the Bronson film, that the First Lady is so ambivalent to the the state of um, her status as the first lady in the sense that like she just doesn't think she's in any danger she's totally confident she puts herself in harm's way constantly throughout the first third of the movie she when they do a little parade towards the inauguration she has them sit in a in a convertible and Killian mentions like we haven't used one of these since 63 you know like this is get you can't, you can't be in here and even beyond that she sits up on top you know she she's got herself wide open out for everybody to see um and as incidents keep piling up you know, and against the better judgment of all of her bodyguards, she thinks it's fine, you know. So she's not literally inviting assassination, but it does feel like both of these films have subjects that are totally fine with the idea initially of putting themselves in harm's way and then <laughs> retracting that and realizing, oh, having someone trying to kill you kind of sucks and I don't want to deal with that, you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the best jokes in Bullworth is that he almost immediately starts like rushing everywhere <laughs> because he's afraid he's gonna get shot. And like yeah. to me, that's some of the funniest stuff is just like Beatty's work with crowds and walking, uh, and and that paranoia manifesting itself, you know. Mm-hmm. And and certainly not the first time in in his career, right? I was thinking about the parallax view uh, again. Again, you know, watching this movie and being like, oh, yeah, Beatty was already in one of the great assassination movies, of course. But mm-hmm. I think to your point too, Ryan, like about about the cringe aspect of it, I think it's what you said in a sense that like it, it's Beatty's entire career. I mean, this guy understood or understands the spectacle He was a part of old Hollywood. He was a part of new Hollywood. He was a part of new, new Hollywood. Uh, And that really struck me around this time is that like, as much as it's a political movie, his main target is kind of like the media industrial complex, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think he's certainly most comfortable uh, in that zone. He's got a lot to say, right? There's there's a reason that Bullworth goes to a Hollywood fundraiser, right? So Warren can talk shit about Israel and how how the movies they make are bad or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could you could almost imagine uh Golan Globus like being in that room, you know. <laughs> Maybe not, but you know, touche. It's no, true. I mean, yeah, of course. Like, but I think that's a that's a that is really an important part because, you know, yes, obviously the things about this film that I think can make a lot of people just go like, what is like, yeah, Warren Beatty suddenly rapping and and dancing around. Yeah. Uh, he knows like, how to like get your attention. Yeah, and is like my he point. Has, 
Yeah, and he has said that that like the the ultimate choice for for rapping, you know, the ultimate choice for that is because he basically himself was just like, what would be the most embarrassing, ridiculous thing for me to be doing? You know, what would what would look stupid? What is the most stupid thing that this guy can suddenly start doing? And 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 how can we create dynamism in that? And I think that's a that's a very important thing. Is like he knows how cringe it is. Like yes. He, it's, he yeah. doesn't think he's cool. You know, this wasn't crafted to be like, whoa, Bullworth's cool. Like he is, he's, he's, he is a clown, you know? And, and he, he just basically goes full clown, but it's like, it's like through that, you know, through the clowning that, that, you know, there's a sort of like a spark, a realization of, of truth within it, you know? But, but yeah, I mean, like, this is a satire and at times I, I forgot like, you know, how, how colorful and how goofy and, and even like in its visual styling, like how artificial it looks at times. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it looks like Pierre Lefou, uh, in a lot of situations. And like Mar said, you know, this was a dude who went through, you know, new Hollywood who saw the new wave, who was really influenced and inspired by it. You know, Beatty wanted Godard at a certain point to direct Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and, uh, you know, wasn't Godard originally attached to it? And then there were disagreements and... And Truffaut. And Truffaut. They were both attached at a certain point. And Truffaut, like, helped them do rewrites. And Warren was, like, in the mix and all of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and I think it... it it really shows. And, and like Pierre Lefou, you know, it's like about a guy from like, you know, the upper middle class that is, is going through like a total breakdown and, and going completely like unhinged and, and finding, finding suddenly certain pleasures in his death march, if you will. Yeah. I think that when I'm thinking about the film feeling a bit cringe at times, I completely agree with you that there is enough self-awareness there that the idea of Warren Beatty dancing around with his silly voice rapping is like inherently cringe and a part of the satire of the film. There were just like moments in the film that kind of reminded me of Albeit something I haven't read, but like David Foster Wallace's book about rap. All right, you're done there. <laughs> Stop. You know, it's still just kind of like no. really earnest, but kind of also just like kind of awkward. Like, oh, look at this white guy kind of just being like, look what I discovered, you know. But that's part of the hollowness of Bullworth is that he's just taking what people say already and then yes. turning it around and exploiting it. I don't think it's that's like true. portrayed as, as anything but like this, he's this negative force in the world. No, I agree. I agree. I think like the film gets at its most interesting towards the end. I just didn't want to like we don't want to jump too far ahead but when it is him regurgitating all of these things other people said verbatim you know that the, the, the ideas don't actually belong to him and he becomes this vessel for them to me that was like the most inspired gesture in the film but i will say though without a doubt you know i maybe i shouldn't claim that assassination is an entirely cringe there's obviously plenty uh, throughout, you know, it is a it is a product of its era, and one of the things that made me laugh the most, um, and certainly cringe on the couch, was was Bronson's relationship with one of his coworkers. That is something that's very heavily featured uh, initially in the film, because as I mentioned, you know, Bronson and Jill Ireland married, and this film kind of like 
toys with the idea of their mutual attraction developing throughout, but the front half of the movie, um, you know, it's venomous. They're, they're at each other's throats. And instead, Bronson, 65, looking, you know, a little bit over 70 probably, does have this very young and attractive co-worker that um, they have like a very fiery relationship because, you know, like a Bronson film or even a Clint Eastwood film, Bronson is playing a divorced man, you know, who recently had to go through many, many loopholes to communicate with other people through the divorce proceedings, developing secret codes with, with some of his friends for their phone calls, you know, but the, the amount of like sexual energy that this young woman shows towards Bronson of just <laughs> him presumably lighting her fire and her wanting him every hour of the day, multiple times a night was just agonizing. Well, it was, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we need to paint it, paint a more vivid picture as yeah, well that's what I was <laughs> because say. you, you, you haven't highlighted one of the key elements here that it isn't just a young woman, but it's also a young Asian woman. Yes. And like, there's even this like fucking scene where, where he does finally like acquiesce to her many sexual advances. And then they're like in her apartment. Um, and, and she's just, she's wearing like this, this like sexy kimono thing or whatever. Yeah. This cartoonishly like, you know, the, the Chinese like high necked silk, like skin tight dress thing. And it's like, why is she fucking wearing that? It's like, are you, are you, you know, extra trying to put extra emphasis on the fact that she's Asian, you know, like, I mean, like, and, and they really like hammer that, you know, that she's just this, like this, this Asian, I'm assuming Chinese, uh, sex doll for Bronson to yeah. play with. Killy, I've got a great idea. Don't you ever give up? Never. You know what the rules are. We don't mix business with that other stuff. That other stuff, he calls it. Poor man. It's getting late and we're going to be late. Get my check. Her name is Charlotte, but all the Secret Service agents call her Charlie. And her last name is Chang. Charlie Chang. Yeah. Right? Like... Yeah. I mean, like, in that regard, you know, it's like, again, like, comparing the two films, contrasting the two films, whatever, bringing them into conversation, like, Assassination is a racist movie, you know? It is it is yes. a racist movie. And Bullworth is a film that is, like, confronting racism. Right. Uh, in a very direct way, in a very satirical way, in a very like ridiculous in your face way. Whereas, yeah, again, like this is, this is Reagan's America, this, you know, of the eighties. Uh, and, and it's just racist and sexist and, uh, and prominently features John Wayne airport. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, it's crazy too when you read like 
because there's so much written about canon films productions and the production history so there's always like a plethora of trivia associated with them and it's funny how revisionist some of them are or at least how and uh, how just the the people who are writing that like are totally unaware of you know th- that type of energy in these films the racism the sexism the nastiness because all of the trivia for this film just talks about how noble bronson was for like allowing the actress who plays charlie chang to not be um like nude in the film she was uncomfortable about being nude so the noble bronson spoke up on her her behalf for production you know so then then it's almost like they they punished her then by putting her in like an offensively like grotesque chinese silk dress right it's like all right you don't want to be naked wear this yeah it's it's really a bummer to think about and then it also mentions that bronson and the actress became like extremely good friends to the point where bronson would have her over for christmas like multiple years in a row which is funny thinking about i would like to go to the bronson family christmas parties you know? oh hell yeah um, yeah no offense to bronson by the way you know he didn't write this goddamn movie no. he didn't direct it you know <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's funny then that you even mentioned in your intro like the the red the 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 bond red alert or whatever, you know, and Peter Hunt because in that sense Charlie throughout the film really strikes me as just sort of like, you know, the the B-side Bond girl in the movie, right? Yeah. Where you know Bond's got the 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 Madonna that he's going for, you know, the higher more, you know, respectable uh beauty and then Throughout the Bond film, so many, he has kind of like his side piece, you know, where he's like, well, I got to get a little while I'm playing the long game with this other Bond girl. You enjoyed last night. I never slept better in my life. Slept? Did I miss something? Sailor, you didn't miss that. Charlie, get some clothes on. That's not what you said last night. Kelly, why don't you move in here permanently? I don't want to die from a terminal orgasm. <laughs> you know, and that's that's really what she she the, the purpose she sort of fills in this. But you know, there is like no chance that this is gonna like lead anywhere other than Bronson and Jill Ireland, like, yes, discovering their love or affection for one another. Well, you know, he gets his gets his, you know, rocks off with the uh, his young Asian co-worker a little bit. Right. Yeah, I think one little bit of uh, quote-unquote film criticism I found for this movie really kind of accurately describes the effect this has on the general audience member. I just found like a piece, you know, from Ultimate Action Movie Club, Charles Bronson delivers the ultimate goods in assassination. And the, the final paragraph of this piece mentions, you know, Charles Bronson's portrayal of Secret Service agent Jay Killian is compelling. He is able to combine athletic foot pursuits, precision marksmanship, and expert knowledge to bring his subject to life. The audiences will be drawn into the complicated interpersonal relationships, as well yeah. as the action itself. And then this is this is when it gets really great. He says, Only a man with great training and instincts could navigate the complicated path Jay Killian is given. Only a man with great restraint could avoid having an affair with a beautiful woman who eventually admits she finds him attractive. Jay Killian is such a man. If you're a fan of great action flicks with interesting subplots, make sure you watch Assassination. 
you what's will be glad you did. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, truly. D- disagree, disagree <laughs> with like every one of those points. Yeah. By the way, yeah, you just know? a series yeah, of like lines that did watch the same movie. Yeah, we'll we'll get into all that, but I, I disagree with with every single statement made there. <laughs> the complicated character from Tombstone, Arizona, whose dad <laughs> is is buried on Boot Hill. Just this divorced guy. You Wait, know? and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there also like this odd moment where it's just sort of revealed when he's having a conversation with this senator that he's also Hawaiian? Because uh, remember, speaks Hawaiian. I don't know if he is Hawaiian. Okay, I thought I thought the point was that he was like originally like his his. His heritage is Pacific Islander. Like he's a he's from like Hawaii, and then they eventually moved to Tombstone. He wasn't like I thought like born there, but his dad moved them to Tombstone because he was the the he was writing Western novels or something like that. Right. The father was writing Western novels. I, I just remember- assumed he <laughs> threw off those lines of Hawaiian because he's like a very good Secret Service agent and is like, oh, it's the senator from Hawaii. I know I know a couple lines to say to him. Aloha. Aloha, Senator. Well, hello, Nui. Ole Pilikia. Spoken like a native, brother. Been to my islands? Yep. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess we're already overanalyzing it more than we need to. But, you know, for me, it was like with Bronson, I I thought that they were like trying to give him that heritage as well. Because, you know, one of the the struggles always historically uh, with Bronson in Hollywood is he's one of those guys that, you know, he's just so alien in terms of the way he looks and sounds that, that so many of his characters have to be given this sort of strange background of like, well, what what even is this guy? You know, like what's his, what's his nationality? Like, where's he from? Cause he doesn't sound American. You know, he's, he's kind of got an accent and, and his face, I, I'm trying to sort of figure out where this, this mutt comes from that, you know, his I know. he looks like you, Andy. Well, you know, <laughs> he is a Lithuanian icon and, and that I, I understand, but I, I'm saying, I feel like Hollywood's often tried to, to sort of you know give him a little explanation for for that that face that doesn't look Irish that doesn't look Italian that doesn't look like a guy who was born in California for that matter no, you know without a doubt i mean it reminds me of an episode of the dick cavett show that i will never forget watching on marsh's back porch where he's interviewing charles bronson and he just asked dick cavett asks bronson you know oh how come you you know hollywood really likes to cast you as a an american indian as a native american man i feel Mm -hmm. like you you know you find yourself in those roles quite often why do you think that is and I'll i'll never forget bronson's answer where he just says it's the mongol blood it's my Mongol. <laughs> you know, yeah, over dude. From, was, uh, the Mongols were the first Native Americans. They they came over from 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 Mongolia into into the United States, and it's like we should just pl- you should just pull the clip, Marsh. <laughs> but, you know, some people think you're part Indian because you play you're so convincing as an Indian. In uh, uh, well, you're convincing as everything you are. You're th- later you'll be convincing as a Mongol or whatever you happen to be doing. That's what I am. It's the Mongolian blood. You know, the Indians and the Mongols are supposed to be related. Uh-huh. They did come over to America from um, land that connected Siberia with Alaska. Bering Straits, I yeah. Uh, the Bering Strait, yeah. So you have Mongolian blood. Yeah, my daughter has a Mongolian mark on her backside. 
Really? There was some, yeah, there were some pediatricians, they kept seeing this appear. It's a blue birthmark. Yeah. And they couldn't figure out why, you know, some babies had it and some babies didn't. And they traced it to Genghis Khan. It's a Mongolian spot, they call it. Does, it in, does that indicate that your doctor, your, your doctor, your daughter is a direct descendant of uh, Mongolian Either. royalty? And in fact, possibly yeah. Genghis Khan? Yeah. Gee. This is what he says. Yeah. I don't know. But it is like the most insane shit. Yeah, his blood in a certain level, like my family's, can be tied to the step, you know? Yeah. The open step. And, and that's what I mean. Like, he's often been given something like that, which is the only reason why, for a second, I thought they were also going to try to be like, he looks the way he does because he's from Hawaii or whatever, you know? Like... <laughs> Like, they have to ex still sort of explain it, you know? Right. They say that with, like, Arnold. Like, you know, and Arnold, they always had to, when he was this huge yeah. American action star, explain why he's <laughs> he's Arnold. It's like his character, at a certain point, it had to be said why this sheriff in New Mexico, you know, has a thick Austrian accent or whatever, you know? They had to, like, write that in to his character in order to just, like, make an audience buy it for a second. They never explained it in The Terminator, though. Yeah, that's, that's you know... I guess it's just a matter of programming, but again, why? Yeah, that's because, you know, the, you know, the, the Teutons are the most machine-like of all people, really. <laughs> it's too bad Bronson never played, like, a robot man. I think that he sort of predated that wave of... Of action cinema. Well, he's kind of a robot man in this goddamn movie. I'll be I, honest yeah, with you. you it's know, true. It's a pretty, it's a pretty lifeless uh, performance. Late, late canon performance from from Charles Bronson throughout. You know? Yeah, it did remind me of you know more Bond alerts, uh, specifically just with Peter Hunt. It reminded me of Roger Moore's performance in View to a Kill, like watching him run up those stairs in San Francisco, looking oh, like God. he was going to have a stroke or something. You yeah, know, just the slow way that Bronson moves throughout these action scenes, very lethargic, which is kind of crazy. I mean, Peter Hunt was old, but. The other Peter Hunt-Bronson collaboration, Death Hunt, is, is really movie. energetic. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. it shows Peter Hunt's chops. So this was, you know, he was a little sleepy for this one, for sure. Yeah. To me, I wrote down, like, this is a movie of, like, very elaborate helicopter takeoffs and motorcades where, like, yeah. they're really padding the runtime, like, in, in some of this. Like, how many helicopter departures are in this movie? At least six, you know? And oh, we're, yeah. like, watching them in real time, like, load on the helicopter, <laughs> take off, you know? Mm -hmm. But I, I do think, yeah, like, like you said in your intro, Ryan, I really did like the like Frank Capra road trip in the middle where they like they go to fake Kokomo, Indiana. I've been there, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can uh, see the mountains in the background in Kokomo. Very funny. Yeah, that's not what it's like. Um, they go, they go, they go to Hannibal, Missouri. Like. Yeah, in my in my notes, I wrote this is Canon's. It happened one night. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. That's the way I saw this film because yes. you, you've got the the mismatched, you know, the the mismatched pair. Here they are, like. You know, here's this 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 uh, this this icon of women's lib. You know, this ain't Nancy Reagan, and we've got Bronson who did it the old school way. You know, women women are better seen and not heard. It's like, how are they gonna get along? Oh my goodness, you know. And that's what it is. It's it's kind of also yeah, like the taming of the shrew. It's 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 him like teaching her 
in his own way, like how to, how to truly live. And, and, and by that, I mean like respectfully, quietly, not ostentatiously, uh, you know, with security in mind at all times. And that's also, you know, how you can tell they, like, they totally blew it in this movie because they do like this whole Capra-esque thing and there are no class relations at all. That's not a part of it, right? And that's such a central part of the early screwball tradition and specifically it happened one night it's like she's rich he isn't you know like that's where the tension like largely comes from uh and it just popped into my head that you know who produced bullworth with Beatty? yep frank capra frank capra the (laughs) third yeah Uh, and that's and that's i I was looking for that segue (laughs) because i was gonna say you know you you do see that class dynamic in the the romantic pairing that develops throughout Bolworth. Uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but but one of the people that Bolworth encounters in his, you know, during his breakdown, uh, his 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 chase with his, you know, the assassins he's hired, uh, he he encounters Halle Berry, who is like a young black activist, and and he is of course immediately smitten with her, and. Their interactions throughout the film also will play like a huge role in his kind of, yeah, reawakening, I guess you could say. It's it's like the inverse in that regard, then. She's going to teach him a thing or two about power, about leadership, about the world as it actually is for most people. Why do you think there are no more black leaders? Some people think it's because they all got killed. But I think it has more to do with the decimation of the manufacturing base in the urban centers. Senator, an optimistic, energized population throws up optimistic, energized leaders. And when you shift manufacturing to the Sun Belt in the third world, you destroy the blue-collar core of the black activist population. Some people would say the problem is purely cultural. The power of a media that's continually controlled by fewer and fewer people. Add to that monopoly of the media, a consumer culture that's based on self-gratification. Now, you're not likely to have a population that wants leadership that calls for self-sacrifice. But the fact is, I'm just a materialist at heart. If I look at the economic base, high domestic employment means jobs for African Americans. World War II meant lots of jobs for black folks. That is what energized the community for the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, and energized hopeful community will not only produce leaders, but more importantly, it'll produce leaders they'll respond to. Now, what do you think, Senator? It's one of the things that people had remarked on. And, and I, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Again, we're finding the connections between the films, right? But you have Bronson, uh, paired up with this very, very, very young Asian woman. And you have Warren Beatty also, you know, 60 something paired up with a very young Halle Berry in her twenties. I mean, this is pretty early in, in Halle, Halle Berry's career and and her eventual like rise and i think this film was like a big breakout role for her and i mean she is awesome in this movie as the sort of you know the the figure that that is is speaking truth to power trying to speak truth to him because as we've said like bullworth like he is in a position of power and so even though he starts going off at the 
you know, at everyone around him, at his donors, at these insurance executives, at the lobbyists, at these Hollywood producers or whatever. Like he is still, yeah, like a slime ball from the system. And he and he's often pointing that out. And I think that's where a lot of his, you know, his emptiness and his frustration comes from, because he's sort of like, at the end of the day, what does it matter, you know, that I say all this to these guys? It really doesn't matter because I'm one mm. of them, you know, I am them. I am, I am not the, 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 the leader that anyone deserves or wants or should have. Yeah. I was thinking too about Halle Berry, her being so young in this movie, how immediately clear it is that she's going to be a star, you know? And it, it reminded me of when we watched Carbon Copy Marsh with like young Denzel, just like this guy's going to be an A-list oh my celebrity. God, yeah, you it's know? so obvious. <laughs> and it is funny too, just like watching Bullworth in general. I, it's amazing how every single perf- like character in that movie, as secondary or tertiary as they are, it was you know a Hollywood actor I recognized. You know, I, the mm-hmm. amount of like. Character actors and star power in this movie is insane. And it's amazing that, I mean, obviously, Warren Beatty, a part of the system. He's been in Hollywood forever. He has these resources. He can bring these people in for this passion project. But it is remarkable, too, then, that self-awareness you were talking about, Andy, in terms of Bullworth knowing he's a part of this system. And then here's Warren Beatty making this treatise on Hollywood, and he has all the tools at his disposal. He has all of these actors that you've seen so many times in different 90s movies. And it's like, here they are around every single corner, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to 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 know that about Beatty himself, you know, mm-hmm. that he was this dude who who had a, a big political awakening uh, in the late 60s after being this just, you know, young breakout star. I mean, he talks about that. I was like, he's like, I was 23 or whatever. And suddenly I was a movie star. I was rich. I was loaded. I was, I was there. I was in the, the, the upper echelons of, of fame and fortune. And, you know, it was like Bobby Kennedy that, that was like, you know, this, this force that, that awakened in him, this desire to, to, to see the world in a much more political way. And then, you know, he was, McGovern's like finance manager or some shit like that. I mean, this guy was like out there, like raising money for McGovern, trying to get that guy elected. And, and, and it didn't happen, right? It didn't happen. And so 20 years later, this is Beatty looking at all of that and at his career and being this guy that, yeah, has mansions and has won awards and, and can pick up the phone and get any, any powerful figure from Washington to from Washington DC to fucking Los Angeles, California, like on the horn and, and, and start talking millions of dollars, start talking about, you know, making a movie, making a picture, doing something, getting something going. And I think, you know, Beatty is a guy that, that in his own way has, has sort of struggled with that and struggled to, to face that. And, and, being this sort of vain narcissistic dude that he is it's like it's his obsession right it's not just his obsession with politics but how he's viewed his legacy what he is you know i could have done more i should have done more but i'm just this 
rich movie star, you know? I think that's all very much on display. Yeah, I think I you, you nailed it, Marsh, that it's like, yeah, as much as this movie is about politics, like he's really setting his sights on, you know, the forces that shape politics in contemporary America. And that's movies and TV more than anything else. And, and too, you get a sense, I think, like through the rhetoric of the film, which, which towards the end becomes direct address. He also like calls out, you know, uh, the American citizen in this film, just sure. being like, please care, you know, yeah. like, you should care. Like, yeah. Please. I mean, this, the, the, the film began, <laughs> the film began as an idea for, you know, uh, of just like a, basically like a depressed guy who hires a hitman to kill himself, who was just like a normal guy. And, you know, I think he started like coming up with this idea in the early nineties, but really like this thing became what it is after the 1996 election and the 1996 election is one of like the like lowest voter turnouts uh, we had in any presidential election. I think, you know, I was like looking at numbers again, because I remember historically knowing that, that it was just a sort of like really boring election. Uh, It was of the voting age population, only 49% showed up to the polls in 1996. I mean, like please care how how when it's it's clinton and dole in 96 and and that's really what this film i think was born out of like that particular moment of this very mediated election and all the fanfare and the money that goes into you know getting a president elected and just more than half of the voting population going for what You know, nah, excuse me, right? Fuck it. I'm going to watch Jerry Springer instead. Oh, yeah. And I certainly was. Um, But (laughs) yeah, it's also a a direct, uh, it's a direct attack on Clinton, right? It's a direct attack on the Democrats for what they did with the crime bill and gutting welfare in the early 90s. Like it's, yeah, it really is. Like I can see it. It's like, yeah, he's got this goofy idea for a plot, and then like he's fuming, watching the Clinton administration as the screenplay just like grows and grows and grows. Yeah. And I know that, uh, you know, the uh, the ultimate irony of all of this is that the film was produced and financed by Fox and he had full creative control of $32 million and Fox didn't even know the actual content of the film until they saw the rushes and saw the cut. They were totally unaware of the political content of the movie. They simply knew it was like this assassination thing, you know? Uh, And of course, you know, all, all the jokes with that. And then they basically like tried not to like promote it. Like it opened, Opened really mm-hmm. strong and then they just like tried to bury it as quickly as they could and they did mm-hmm. um yeah look and and i think part of the reason why i i hold this film in such high regard like as a, a political satire um is that you know it's it's to me it's so cheap you know, if, if Warren Beatty were to come out and make this guy a Republican Senator, right? Like that's, that's cheap. I'd hate this movie if, if he was a Republican Senator, but the fact of the matter is he's a Democrat. He's a Democratic Senator. And this movie is attacking like the left. I I shouldn't even say the left. It's attacking the Democratic Party. It's attacking the DNC. It's attacking like 
modern liberal and even more specifically like neoliberal America, like that's its main target. It's, it's yes, Marsh to your point, it's like, please care, you know, but it's like, it's, it's calling the, the democratic party to task more than anybody else. And their shift, right. Their shift to the center to win these boring, safe elections to just get losers like him, in there over and over and over again to quite literally do nothing, do nothing. Yeah. Bullworth is fucking Dick Durbin to me, just like a husk of nothingness, you know, this fucking useless, worthless Mm -hmm. guy that gets elected fucking my whole life. This guy has sat there and just fucking does nothing. Like it's (laughs) unbelievable. So like, I really feel that, you know, uh, on a personal, uh, Illinois I mean, dude, level. his, his campaign ads are fucking hilarious to me. You know, yeah, the campaign affirmative action. <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, he's got so many like hilarious lines in there. We stand at the doorstep of a new millennium. Our obligation, California families who live by the rules and work hard and pay their taxes shouldn't be paying for people who do nothing. I'm Jay Bullworth. I believe in a hand up, not a hand down. I need your support on Tuesday. I'm Jay Bullworth. You know, we stand at the doorstep of a new millennium. I'll fight to abolish unnecessary affirmative action programs. I'm Jay Bullworth. You know, we stand at the doorstep of a new millennium. Our obligation is to reduce our... I'm Jay Bullworth. You know, we stand at the doorstep of a new millennium. Our welfare system is out of control. Of course we should help families. My name is Jay Bullworth. We stand at the doorstep of a new millennium. My wife Connie and I have been married for 24 years. She's been a loving partner and, more importantly, Connie's been my friend. Jay has been a great senator for California, but the best job he's done is as a loving husband and a devoted father. I believe in the old-fashioned values of honesty and decency and fidelity. Join me in my crusade to strengthen California's families. You know, like, this guy, he he might as well be a fucking Republican, but that's what they did. They started catering to that kind of mindset. And then, yeah, like, you know, trying to rile up the the white middle class voters once again by, by pitting them against minorities in our country, people of color, you know, getting them to worry about crime and affirmative action and welfare and all those kinds of things. And I, I mean, yeah, think, he's a disgusting fucking dude and he knows it. I mean, he knows it. Yeah. And I think that one of the most brilliant strokes of the movie in that respect too, and this is jumping a little bit to the end, but I think it's still worth bringing up is the idea that it's exactly what you're saying, Marsh. Him as this like empty vessel, this like horrible person that just keeps getting reelected. Because the movie really goes to great lengths to essentially tell you, without saying it explicitly, that this mental break that he has when he does start rapping, when he does start going against the establishment, isn't necessarily maybe that he believes it like deep down within him but that it is all like sort of based off malnutrition and him having sort of a psychotic break where he again is just regurgitating what people tell him and maybe there's like a part of him in the back of his mind that does really believe these things and is giving into it but the evidence of Bullworth's transition into this destabilizing force does seem to be largely a result of 
he hasn't slept for multiple days. He hasn't eaten for three or four days, you know, because <laughs> he does have like a recovery moment near the end that does, I think, I think it's really fantastic that this film has such a ambiguous ending. We can talk about it later, but I was wondering throughout, I'm like, okay, is this guy going to get assassinated? Is he going to go back? Is he going to renege on like all of his promises? Like, where are we going to end up with him? And I think it was pretty intelligent to like leave things ambiguous because I think it does suggest that this guy could just be a phony all around throughout the whole film, as provocative as he may be at many moments. He could just be, again, another nothing politician that had a weird episode, you know? Like from the minute that he decides, yeah, fuck it, like I'm gonna kill myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna be assassinated. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get this done. I'm just gonna remove myself from the world. Like he be he 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 suddenly is just kind of like, as much as he's also like dodging the assassins as Marsh mentioned, which is fucking hilarious, right? That he's like he's that much of a coward. Not only that he like agreed to have himself assassinated, but that he can't even just stand fucking still and take the goddamn bullet, you know? And from the get go, like the assassins or would be assassins, which are also somewhat ambiguous in terms of like who it's going to be and where, like. They're just like, God damn it. Like, just fucking just t you, you wanted this. Take it. You know, you said by Monday, we're trying it, motherfucker. But 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 beyond that, he also just starts to become like really present, like very present then in every moment he has. He's mm -hmm. he he is not just going through the motions like he's snapping out of that he's like fuck it why am i gonna go through the motions why am i gonna read this pre-planned speech by oliver platt you know this pre-written speech like eh, fuck it i could sit up here and i could read this thing line for line but like i'm gonna i'm gonna be present in this moment we're gonna have like a we're gonna i'm just gonna cut the bullshit or whatever but beyond that he's he's paying attention to everybody around him he's like ignoring He's ignoring his advisors, you know, the the apparatchiks who are who are constantly trying to shuffle him here and there and noticing the people, noticing the people that he's interacting with and he's learning from them. He's listening from them. He's picking up on things. He's like, that's cool. Whether it's like slang, you know, there's this great moment in the limo where he's like listening to the to the to the young black women, like just, you know, gossiping and stuff. And he's like, he's like, oh, Jimmy. That means dick, right? Or he's like, what does it mean to mac on somebody? You know, like he's, he what's doesn't fat? care. Yeah. What's fat, right? He's, he, he's, he wants it all. He wants to kind of consume it all. And then he does start to eat. Uh, he gets a taste for chicken wings after saying right. some racist shit at the black church. You know, he goes to the, to the club, the, he goes to Frankie's like that after hours club and like a dude hands him a blunt and it's like, is this the first time he's ever, you know, Marshall, I was thinking of like a few episodes ago, episodes ago when you did the smokes weed once, that's yeah. also what this movie is. Like, it's also just a smokes weed once. And then this shit happens, <laughs> right? Like he Absolutely. hits the blunt and there's like, there's no turning back for him. But, but in all of his interactions with, with people from this point on, he's incredibly present like he is that empty vessel that chooses then to start filling himself up with the people, with, yeah. with the people, with those around him. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, even when he's regurgitating things, it's like, isn't this what a politician's really supposed to fucking do? He's supposed to it's listen true. to what the people say and then and then represent them on TV, you know, and be like, hey, here's what my constituents say. 
So it's like, yeah, there is this element of like, yeah, he's just like stealing lines from people. But the reactions he's getting from from those people who hear him saying those things is like, hey, he listened. <laughs> like he heard me. Like he heard what I had to say about jobs, right. about black leadership, about all these things. So so in that regard, he, he does kind of become like, yeah, a great politician because he's lost himself and he is this this person who's, you know, he's he's emptied what is full and now he's filling what is empty through everything and everyone around him. And he has a vision of uh, this kind of like like bum poet uh, several times throughout the movie. That's also like this kind of either maybe a real guy or just like, yeah, him him completely losing it. But the guy urges him. Poet! Ubat Chappelle, a cuckoo-mop. Can you sing, Bullworth? That was when you was Peter Paul and Mary, and then rock and roll, I told you couldn't be a ghost, you got to sing. But you got to be a spirit, Bullworth. That's how these niggas got here in the first place. The ghosts got them when they put their hand on each other. You got to be a spirit, and the spirit will not descend without song. You got to sing, fool. Don't be no ghost, Bullworth. And I think that's, like, again, what you're talking about, Andy, like, the everyone filling him with all this stuff that he can then go into the room with all the other people from Beverly Hills, the only people's votes who really count in this country, uh, and then, you know, talk shit or whatever. <laughs> I want to highlight, though, that, that when he smokes that blunt, uh, one of my favorite bits in the movie, of course it is, we get... <laughs> Yes. Barry, Shabaka, Henley as the mm-hmm. bartender at the club. And there's this amazing exchange where someone's like, they see Beatty and they're like, Well, what the hell are you doing down here, sugar? Just chilling. God damn. Hey, Leroy, get over here. Have a drink on me, sweetness. Leroy, look who we got here. Clint Eastwood. Damn. That ain't no Clint Eastwood. Oh, what the hell you mean? That ain't no Clint Eastwood. No, that's George Hamilton. George Hamilton? Yeah, he got that TV show. Hey, George, what's happening? What's up, man? God damn. <laughs> he with you? Yeah. What's happening? <laughs> and then Warren Beatty's like, just goes along with it and pretends to be George Hamilton. Uh, mm. Columbo alert. Yeah, dude. It's yeah. true. That's true. And then we get mm-hmm. that great George Hamilton cameo later in the film. And it's true because Warren Beatty really does look like George Hamilton. Like, it, yeah. you know, and I see a little bit of Clint. George, in his yeah, face George as Hamilton well. is cut rate Warren Beatty, right? Yes, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. For yeah. yeah. And I think, too, again, like, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, this movie. I mean, man, it is just jokes, jokes, jokes. It is so sharply written. There's just so much going on, you know? There's just so many asides, so many little bits and gags with all of the side characters. But I think also in that joke, you know, I mean, this movie, like I said, it, it it's, it's also about race, and it's about racism. And I think that part of the joke there, and a very self-deprecating one from a narcissist like... Warren Beatty, this this legendary Lothario who could have any woman in the world and damn near did at a certain point. Like he's like, you know, he's got these two people in this club being like basically like, yeah, all white guys look the same. Yeah, who are <laughs> you? Know? you? Like, yeah, you're who just some Warren Beatty. Yeah. yeah, you're just some dumb, generic, handsome white guy, right? You know, and they get him confused with other like handsome, striking white dudes, you know? 
I do think it's just so funny and so heartwarming how excited the bartender is, though, that Clint Eastwood might be there. Just like, yes. Clint, what are you doing here? Like, great to see you. And I love, like, how relaxed she is to just be like, hey, Clint, how's it going? I thought that was, like, super charming. But I did really, I like that you brought up, Marsh, the, the great line of the film and the film that I think really invokes what um, the central, like, thesis ultimately is this idea that, like, you know, be a spirit, don't be a ghost. And I do think that that line is a great way of like contrasting both of these films too, because Bullworth is a film full of spirit and assassination is a film that is a ghost, you know, it's, it, as we've mentioned, it's, it's all at the tail end of, of like a cycle of the Bronson cycle, the Jill Ireland cycle. And Bronson moves through this film like a ghost to the point where at moments they like aren't even bothering to hide the fact that his like stunt doubles are there oh like my that's God. how much of a ghost bronson is there's like an amazing shot of bronson like on a bmx bike right we've got bronson as the bmx bandit that also is kind of like a james bond bike because there's a machine gun on the front that he seems to be controlling yep. as he's riding around that's a bond alert yeah, and at one moment he just hops off of the bike and in a totally graceless cut, it is a man who has near black hair. Bronson is like a very snowy white throughout most of this film who looks maybe 30 pounds lighter than Bronson. His clothes almost look like a different color. It's 30 insane. years younger. 30 years younger, different facial hair. It's 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 psychotic how different yeah. his stuntman looks and you really do feel like bronson's presence in a ghost in that sense throughout a lot yeah. of those scenes. it has some of the worst stunt double work i've ever seen oh yeah yeah i mean like i was i was when you picked it i was like hoping after watching the trailer that this would at least be like some some dumb fun and like it's pretty dumb <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and by that i mean like yeah incredibly like creaky and and lazy like every punch in the movie is telegraphed and, and yeah. so slow, you know, it, you, you, you dodge them with no effort whatsoever. You see them coming a mile away. And like, even in that whole sequence where they really are like, okay, wait, here comes a big action sequence. Like you just know it's coming because like the whole production, the whole team, their convoy, whatever, they are suddenly now like in a big field. <laughs> they're just like, they're, they're not in a city, you know, they're not in a place where you're going to need to like, you know, secure a bunch of like city streets and, and coordinate a ton of extras. They basically just got some stuntmen. They're in a field and Bronson is now, you know, not wearing a suit as a secret service agent, but he's got his crisp dad jeans on. He's got his <laughs> bomber jacket. He's in in action movie like costume now you know you know some sort of action sequence is coming here and and when it does arrive and then culminate not in like fisticuffs or a well choreographed shootout but essentially a rocket launcher duel <laughs> between two men <laughs> like it's like they're not even it's like what the fuck is this it's it's literally just like him and another like would-be assassin shooting rocket launchers at each other across a field and missing each other badly. It's like, what the fuck 
is this? Yeah, the idea of him as like a rocket launcher sharpshooter that's trying to shoot <laughs> this dude on a bike driving away into the woods, like as yeah. if Bronson has such precision with such a weapon. Oh my yeah. god. I was like, why didn't you just shoot him with your gun? You would have hit him. <laughs> you know? He's like, damn, I missed with the rocket launcher. It's like, of course you fucking did. Oh my goodness. Right after that scene, the end of that scene, really, he gets back into the limo with Jill Ireland and he's sunburn on his cheeks <laughs> uh, and he wasn't during, during the action scene. It fucking, it fucking rips, man. Yeah. Uh, Wow. The heat yeah. of the bazooka, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a motorcycle. Like, when they're riding motorcycles and it's actually shots of them, they are going five miles an hour. <laughs> it is, like, yeah. it, it truly is, yeah, like a, a kind of low of action cinema. Uh, just, like, really just, you know, like milking this old man for some action. And it's mm-hmm. like, this guy should not be on a motorcycle. Of course, he's going five miles an hour. Like, yeah. yeah. But I guess conversely, like one moment that is nice would then be them is supposed to be Wyoming. But when Jill Ireland and Bronson are riding their motorcycles around Lake Tahoe and they're going very slow and it looks like a lovely afternoon for the two of them on set. You know, they've and got their these- stunt doubles. And their stunt doubles, yeah, they've got mm-hmm. like these bandanas wrapped around their face, which I think is funny. Um, or that might have been when they're in the dune buggy. But regardless, they have like a lot of nice, like very slow strolls on motorcycles, dune buggies. They they get to spend some nice outdoor time together, and that stuff is nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, you know, you 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 have found the uh, the silver lining to this gray ass. <laughs> Cannon cloud, Ryan. And I, 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 yes, I appreciate that element. You know, I, I, I love Bronson and his lovely wife, Jill Ireland. And I'm so glad that, that they were able to put this together so that she could have some sort of return to, to normalcy after her horrible battle with cancer. And and so, yes, looking at that from a very human perspective of people who have given me great pleasures in the past with other films, I suppose like that is one of the things that you could hold on to in in watching this film. But but other than that, (laughs) there's not I mean, like the script is horrible. I mean, it's laughable, the fucking lines that are written. I think my favorite line, the one that I laughed out loud at is at a certain point when when Bronson's trying to explain to her after the many fiery explosions that have happened next to her that someone's trying to kill her and that this plot could be coming from within her inner circle within washington dc itself she says isn't that treason and he replies of the highest order <laughs> like, yeah of course, like yeah. the highest. Oh my good, we've got double ultra treason going yeah. on here. You know, like Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, every element of the film is forgettable. It's like it's the, the one thing I'll remember is the nice stuff with with Jill. I mean, I've already forgotten the villains. I almost have nothing to say about them. They're the most generic terrorists. They're just like two white dudes, two blonde guys that. I don't even remember if they have any lines. Sure. Like I, I got nothing to say about those guys. They're just around, you know? The only other element of the villains that I really, like, remember is just, like, like I kind of alluded to earlier, the discovery of the plot and why they want her assassinated, why a certain group has, has arranged to have 
one mama rubbed out. And that is, uh, we discover because the president has a secret. The president has a has a has a deep secret, and that's that he can't get it up. He's impotent. And you know, Jill Ireland, she's a little. You know, she's a hot one, Mama. She uh, she's not gonna keep herself tied down. She wants a virile man. You know, she's she wants uh, some guy that can satisfy her needs. So she's planning to divorce the president. They find out because he's impotent and then in order to to hide the the impotency of the american president they have arranged this um big assassination uh plot uh which again you know is like such a bummer because that's like something out of fucking bullworth you know like that is that is something that could have been such a great and funny and satirical aspect of this whole story, you know? And it's just sort of like, just like laid there and, and like, of course, you know, and, and I guess very fitting then for a sort of like ultra conservative masculine paranoia of the Reagan era, this, this, this lack of machismo. Yeah. The (laughs) impotent president, like we've got to hide him. Yeah, whatever. Like Jesus Christ, but but yeah. In that uh, sense, both films are really about yeah, like the the rot in American politics. I mean, both plots originate from United States senators. In this case, the the chief of staff, uh, the senator from Hawaii, uh, is ultimately the one sort of like enacting uh, this mm-hmm. plan. Uh, but I also think there's a there's another little connection uh, between the movies, which is the, the Hollywood connection, because there's a whole sequence where we're like introduced to the first lady's dad, and he is a big shot Hollywood producer. Right. And there is a very specific reference in there that really got my imagination going, where he says, uh, or where she says, oh yeah, father was making a movie in Wyoming, Laramie. And I'm thinking, is her dad Anthony Mann? Like, <laughs> what is go- what is going on here? That's true. That's true. Oh my god, I didn't make that connection. That's funny though. You know, I will say I, I want to add a little bit to the idea of this like impotent president because I I do think it's a little bit interesting and it really flies under the radar because they don't adequately highlight it. But it seems like the assassination wasn't necessarily just because they were afraid that like. Jill Ireland would speak out about the president's impotency, but that the fact that the president would have a much greater chance of re-election if he was a widower as opposed to a divorcee. Because her idea is that she's going to quietly divorce the president. And Bronson points out, like, no, they're trying to kill you because, you know, the public then might have sympathy because, because he's a widower, you know? And I think that that's kind of a funny little connection there too then between these films like the the electability argument you know and that's just the kind of idea that coked up oliver platt would come up with (laughs) and he's he to me also like he's his his own movie within bullworth uh, oh, yeah. especially because as increasingly like Bullworth is isolated from his aides, Oliver Platt is just like just pounding cocaine and like doing a one man like veep, you know, kind of yeah. like parody of the the political worker in Hollywood, just kind of like 
he he's a good representative too. This kind of like focus group, poll oriented, like privatization, yeah. you know, like ghoul. Yeah, like, just a wonk, dude. Yeah, just a, and he uh, wants Bullworth to be more conservative. That's sort oh, of yeah. like what's going on the whole time with him. Dude, there's a really, really funny moment even uh, that, that he has that's very like, you know, blink and you miss it. But, but like in the midst of Bullworth's you know, ranting and rapping and and stuffing his face with, you know, cocktail hors d'oeuvres at, at various functions. Uh, he's sort of like trying to to jump ship. He's like, this is it. This is a this guy's going down. He's going to lose. He's crashing and burning. I got to get the fuck out of here. And uh, he's having a, a brief like exchange with Nora Dunn, who plays some sort of like you know, scumbag journo or something like that. And, and Oliver Platt says to her, like, have you heard the rumors? Is Gephardt hiring? Like, and he wants to go work for Dick Gephardt. He's like, I'm going to jump ship on Bullworth to go join Dick Gephardt's fucking campaign. And I was then thinking of my cousin, my cousin who is, you know, basically the Oliver Platt character in this movie, my cousin, Eric, who I love. I, he's an amazing guy, but, but he just, (laughs) He looks like him. He reminds me of him. And and he was a campaign manager and he worked with a bunch of these guys. He worked for like the real Bullworth at a certain point, you know? And and my cousin Eric was so proud of himself on Gephardt's, Gephardt's you know, brief, uh, you know, primary attempt to winning the, you know, the nomination for 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 president. And and he came up with a line that he gave Gephardt and he was so proud about it. And he told me about it. He said, I gave Gephardt this line and it it got a lot of buzz. You know, Gephardt was on the campaign train, campaign trail saying, if you want to live like a Republican, folks, you got to vote like a Democrat. And like, that is just such a fucking Bullworth line. And it's just like the idea of this film yeah. that it was this like shift of being like, Hey, like we're, we'll, we'll be affluent too. Like, we're not going to give all your money away to, to black people, to, to, you know, students uh, trying to get rid of their college debt. Like we'll, we'll take care of your 401k just like these guys. So vote for us. We'll be better with your money than they will, you know, like, the complete and utter like inversion of of whatever they they once said they stood for it's amazing but yeah oliver platt who i love by the way and i i wish he was was a more prominent figure in in american cinema i i love oliver platt and he he does have his own his own wild ass ride throughout this film he wants to crash and burn his entire fucking career fine <laughs> fuck it but I'll be goddamned if that asshole's gonna take us down with him, am I right? And it is not like I have not been completely loyal to that pig fucker. I've had other offers, you know, plenty. I beat him off with a stick. Didn't he have it all though, Bill? Didn't he have it all? Looks. Brains more or less enough, classy wife. But Jesus Christ, Bill, for God's sake, he had us. The motherfucker had us. (laughs) If he had just listened to me on welfare reform in 88, if he just chased not quite so much pussy. Could have gone all the way. I behaved, but still might. 2000's wide fucking open, but now, with this shit, we are fucked in the ass, man. Fucked in the ass with our pants on. You know, again, as much as this is like a showcase for Warren Beatty, 
there are, and Ryan, you sort of already even alluded to this. This this is a stacked cast. There are tons of people who who Warren Beatty has gotten to be a part of this film, and and just about every single person is here for a reason, and they're nailing it. You know, from from even very small bit parts like Jack Warden's to to Paul Sorvino as the 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 shady insurance lobbyist doing he a southern is, accent. He, by he the way, he is very special to to me in this movie because his performance is mostly him looking at Bullworth horrified uh, Mm -hmm. in the background mostly for like a a significant portion of the movie but just it's Sorvino so like just cracking me up as like the worst guy in the world the insurance lobbyist who by the way has sold Bullworth a 10 million dollar life insurance policy uh, so his daughter can cash in uh, on his assassination right and that's really the the whole you know birth of the scheme for Bullworth right it's like he's like I want to die but first I got to make sure that my daughter is taken care of so he he sort of bullies uh, Paul Sorvino into giving him this $10 million policy, like while in the next like meeting he has, he arranges for his own, his own assassination, his death. And he's also like killing a, a healthcare bill that would like have a public option or whatever. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's something else that like, you know, in, in looking at this movie today through oh the lens God. of, of now, nothing has changed. dude. But but yeah. also if you paid attention to like the bill like it's pretty much Obamacare like that was the bill it was the insurance companies were pissed because they were going to be forced to like not like exclude people from right. from selling them insurance like that was the bill it was basically Obamacare and it was like we got to kill this bill it's un-American you know and it's like eventually this was the grand thing that that the democrats came up with were they just watching bullworth 20 years later yeah. hey remember that thing in bullworth where it's like we just forced the insurance companies to sell insurance to people it's like what the fuck and that's also funny because i don't know if you guys came across this but but i read a new york times like profile on obama that was like mentioned you know in in discussions of bullworth where uh in 2013 and at the beginning of of Obama's second presidency where he was, you know, encountering lots of problems and issues with with running the administration the way he wanted or something. And apparently, like in this New York Times piece, they highlight how Obama started going around saying he wished he could go full Bullworth on everyone, you know, but... The, the point being, he didn't, and he would never go yeah. full fucking And his Bullworth. full Bullworth would be like a half Bullworth at best, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no offense, but it's such a fucking funny movie to look at today because of what was going on in 1996, in 1998, that might have seemed so wild and outrageous, and like now where we have sort of also washed up, you know? I, you know, I was curious. I wanted to gauge your response to this. I liked this movie a lot, and I had a lot of fun. I thought it was super funny. I especially loved Oliver Platt, too. I loved that that did feel like its own separate movie. I don't know if this is a hot take. Did you guys think that this was maybe the worst Ennio Morricone score, like, of all time? Oh, to- my God. 
My what goodness. You, I mean, it's, it's, it is like an Ennio, so Ennio Morricone did the music for it, right? But yeah. he's, his music is barely featured in it at all. There, there's almost like no score there except for like one kind of sick moment where there is like a, a Morricone and, and hip hop mashup. You get like some of the, the Morricone strings underneath a hip hop track. Yeah, that but. was cool. I feel like, but I was thinking more just the moments of like when they have the the canned like spooky assassin music that almost sounds like a Disney Channel movie when it was like queuing up, or like even yeah. later in the film during like a grandiose moment, you've got you know the Italian woman doing her oh, you know like the, the ecstasy of gold type noise. To yeah. me, it felt so recycled and really distracted in those moments me from some of the other more like edgy and graceful stuff happening in the film you got it all boys ain't life grand ain't it grand you got the life man let's go McAvoy we're on the move give me the phone I gotta find Tavers you got the Mia spirit let it go McAvoy, do you have any idea where Davers would be? No, sir. Sir, maybe he's at our next stop, church in Pasadena. Senator, you have had such a crushing weekend, sir. You are right, no way obligated to get a message in the I think you should get some sleep. If you went back to the Davers, this is the senator. As soon as you pick up this message, I want you to call the man that you introduced me to in Washington right away. Tell him he has to cancel the weekend research project. That's very important, Davers. Look for you at the church. Uh, yes, McAvoy, the church in Pasadena, and we can drop the young supporters off uh, wherever you'd like to be dropped. Where can we take the young ladies? Well, I think there's a reason why, too. Um, I think there's a reason why. And um, I think that it had something to do with the fact that, like, you know, when Beatty was beginning this this process, you know, he probably was like, yeah, we'll get Morricone to the score. But, like, as Beatty was preparing for the role, he started hanging out with, like, hip hop artist. He started hanging out with like like rappers in in LA and and around the country. I mean, he hung out with Suge Knight. He hung out with Snoop Dogg for a bit. Like he was hanging out with these guys. And again, like Bullworth, I I imagine for Beatty it was like this big like awakening to a whole style of music he was totally unaware of or at least like unfamiliar with. And then it was like in the production, it was like, man, we need more fucking hip hop. We need like this music. And it's like, we don't need this like old Italian, you know, maestro's score. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll have parts of it in there, but like, I mean, there's way more like scenes that feature like hip hop music and hip hop breaks than, than like Morricone interludes, you know? I think that's what also then makes them feel so jarring when they do come in because it's like what the fuck is like this like syrupy morricone score all of a sudden after we were just listening to ghetto superstar (laughs) yeah you almost hear more insane in the membrane in the movie than you hear any morricone 100 (laughs) percent. but you know t you ryan you made me you made me realize something which is why i i like some of that morricone stuff like specifically with the assassin that you mentioned, like it, it's totally over the top, but to me, it's like Bullworth's inner projection. You know, he see he under, sure. he understands that he's a media figure, and he like sees himself 
walking, you know, like in a in a scene from a movie that would have a Morricone score as the assassin is like looking at him mm. or whatever. But <laughs> like ultimately why I, I even like it in the, in that in those bits with the assassin is that that's no assassin at all. And one of the great jokes of the movie, and I think it hits like so hard through the guy's performance is like, there's this shady man with sunglasses and like a telephoto camera, like dogging him at every turn. And the film really makes you think that like, he's the assassin and it's revealed, you know, sort of like at the end, He's just a paparazzi. Boy, I think you should get some sleep. You, you gotta get away from me. This guy's a hitman. He's got a gun. Shoot them together. You gotta get... Are you shooting them both? Then move over here and get him in a two shot. Get him in a two shot. What's funny happens isn't worth a shit without a two shot. Shitty National Enquirer photographer. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is a really good gag because we truly have no reason at all to doubt that he's the not the assassin, you know, because throughout the film, we know that a hit was placed on him. That's not ambiguous. So it's like, okay, they've signaled us. This is him. Like, why would we have any reason to think otherwise? So I too was quite surprised at that reveal. Well, there's a lot actually going on with that as well, because yes, we get this sort of red herring of, of this dude, but also there are other shadowy figures throughout the film that we never really truly see who are behind the scenes trying to arrange like a poisoning at some point and like sabotaging the railing on his hotel room. So like there is, yes, like there are these figures who are, who are trying to kill him, who presumably have been dispatched by Vinny, the, the, I guess, vaguely mob fixer guy that that he you know set up the whole hit with by the one and side note do you guys know who played Vinny the the like you know the organizer of the hit in this film that's director Richard Serafian the director of one of my favorite films Vanishing Point oh wow Beatty you know Beatty just bringing in buds Beatty just bringing in Hollywood and new Hollywood figures to to populate the movie but but yeah, you know, and then at a certain point, as you mentioned, this gag kind of gets revealed, but but I don't think that the threat is totally gone as we see, because Marsh mentioned, you know, Paul Sorvino constantly lurking, constantly sort of like l- just staring daggers into him, that it's sort of like every minute he thinks he's out, he's free, he's, he's dodged something, evaded the assassins, canceled the hit at a certain point. There's there's now a new threat emerging around every corner because he has started to to sort of burn bridges and and and, you know, red flag uh, all these other, you know, sort of nefarious types around him. And it sounds like there was possibility for that sort of thing in the Bronson assassination movie. It sounds like there were plans for a lot more divergent paths you know i quoted that guy talking about the subplots it does sound like there were supposed to be subplots it it sounds like the the budget cuts for this movie resulted in a lot of potentially very fun and interesting things being just like totally axed because it seems like the latter half of that film 
was designed to be this grand road trip, you know, through America, Bronson and Jill Ireland with the first lady encountering the locals, encountering different scenarios. Like I, you know, I obviously haven't read the original script, but I read there was a sequence in Wyoming where the two of them were supposed to be trapped in a cave with a mountain lion, you know, like the film in its, in its like original conception had stuff like that in it. And instead we just have, Generic men with Uzis just like flashing them at the camera, every bullet missing, everyone walking very, very slowly. The main assassin in this movie only shoots while driving, which is this incredible thing. He's on a jet ski, he's driving yeah. a truck, and his Uzi is just like, you know, his hand is just wobbling. And I'm yeah. thinking like... He's limp-wrist in that thing for this, sure. Dude. This fucking guy, like, just slow down, stop, aim, you had him. Why are you, why are you driving? Yeah, dude, my favorite was the jet ski when he's like on the he's trying to assassinate via jet ski and doing the same thing where he's just kind of like hip firing while doing like three sixties on a jet ski like that's like C four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has no urgency at all. It is like so dead on arrival. So yeah. funny. I mean, like the closest they actually got to like any kind of in my feeling like successful hit was at a certain point when Bronson and, and, and Jill Ireland are like, you know, in a motel room or something. And some guy comes in and like kicks in the door, like the, the number two assassin or something kicks in the door and just starts again, spraying an Uzi (laughs) around the motel room. And then Bronson like shoots him, you know, pretty quick. Like the guy just gets shot, you know? And then that led to a great Canon Bronson one liner where, uh, where the the motel that they're staying at in their cross country trip, I'm I'm assuming they're in Pennsylvania because they're at Gettysburg and they're they're staying at Pickett's Charge Motel. And Jill Ireland says, "Wow, Pickett's Charge, you know, the site of of fifteen thousand American soldiers being killed. You know, fifteen thousand men died in Pickett's Charge." And then Bronson goes, "Well, that's no, it's fifteen thousand and one." <laughs> <laughs> it's like just a few of those like moments could could like just keep me energized for for like a couple more minutes and then it would just suddenly descend into into yeah yeah there, there's a couple of those moments where it's just great but yeah yeah, yeah. in general this movie to me like uh, I wrote down in my notes like this is an entry into my goddamn wife cinema like because that's really yeah. what the whole movie is and the and the production was sort of put together for that and from like the get-go it's really just a guy being like huh my wife's a real pain in the ass you know and like all of this stuff sort of spiraling around that whether it's the president's wife or it's bronson's would-be wife or his is asian concubine it is just like a series of bronson going come on really like my wife oh she's gonna get us all killed you know (laughs) like it's just it's just this creaky like just old man shit you know and it doesn't quite have any more drama than that than just a guy like on a bar stool you know uh trying to one-up the guy next to him with a very mediocre complaint about you know something his spouse had done that day 
you got to work hard uh, to appreciate some things in the movie. But if you look hard enough, you'll see in the climax that there's just a guy kayaking. <laughs> <laughs> just, just some innocent man out for like a nice stroll on the lake and they're doing all these like jet ski assassin shots and and that is that's a pleasure right there i'm sure that, that guy got nice. a great show that day you know he uh, did. watching the the stunt man spiral around on a jet ski spraying blanks yeah, maybe he maybe he floated up and got a photo with Bronson afterwards, you know, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. And I guess, you know, one of the other pleasures we do in, in a great genre film fashion, right? We do get a dummy tossed out of a window, falling from a building, like obviously not a human being. That That's a nice oh, yeah. pleasure. I always look out for that sort of thing. Yeah. Again, in great canon fashion, especially with someone like Bronson, you know, when he finally does have the senator cornered, we're going to... You know, arrest this man and bring him to justice. Instead, he just literally like kicks him out of a 15-story window. To, and just, yeah, yeah, we've been here before on the gauntlet. You know, yeah. a movie ending yeah. with a with with a mannequin thrown off of a building. You know, many times. How do you, how do we end this thing? Yeah, but you know, you know, speaking of pleasures for me, like. Man, there are so many little pleasures in Bullworth. And you know, obviously like for me, I I could go through this movie and 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 list so many because I I really do hold this movie in in high esteem and I I think it is such a shame that it's become it's it's it, even in that New York Times piece, they they described it as like this this obscure movie. They called it like an obscure political comedy from the 90s when they were talking about Obama, you know, mentioning Bullworth. It's it's such a shame that the movie was essentially like killed because because I think there's so many great things in it and and I think one of my favorite pleasures was 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 watching Warren Beatty like on the on the turntables, you know, learning how to scratch and he's just scratching these two records and it's basically just saying Tony, keep the pussy tight. begins in five minutes sir but but are you sure you're up to speaking this morning up what's up in his like rumpled ass fucking suit like stained now with barbecue sauce from the ribs he ate at frankie's that barry shabaka henley served him like my god man i love that it's 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 such a treat and in terms of assassination movies you know i i, I did like that bullworth has a very classic uh assassin you know drops the lights on a character who's like performing because he's on television and uh yeah the you know the would-be assassin goes up there and he and he's like making a point so he like leans forward you know very kind of like a 
Day of the Jackal de Gaulle moment, you know. And it's a great and it's a great point that he's making there, which is his idea of how to end racism, which is uh, as Bullworth says, you know, we should just we should eliminate white people and black people. We should eliminate them all. We all just need to start fucking each other until we're the same color. And then I love the he leans forward, Marsh, because he he's got to like clarify that. And he's like, look, it's gonna take a little time. <laughs> he's got it all thought out. And that's when yeah, he's almost killed by the the the, the lighting rig. And but. we get a callback uh, to our technical difficulties episode, uh, as we someone do. explicitly proclaims in the TV studio and that's nice too it's all shot silhouette and uh i would be remiss not to just like talk uh, a little bit more about storaro who shot this because it is a, a, a fairly formally audacious film i think at times in terms of the complex staging of the steady cam but also like storaro's you know style which is very intense like there's a lot of good use of like surreal kind of spotlights that come like in and out of characters throughout but it just has that like intensity of color and movement that like Storaro usually brings to the table so well and it's 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 so it's so funny because it's it's basically this this thing to me visually it's it's shot just like Dick Tracy the other movie that <laughs> yeah. they, they had done I mean yeah. there's just so many like bold ass colors you know the entire fucking background is blue or it's green or it's orange and again reminiscent of also like Godard's Piero Le Fou like all those like dinner party scenes it reminded me so much of that and yeah they're still kind of in that like that that pop comic strip color cartoon composition kind of thing you know when they go to the the hood in south central storaro's just got the blue filter just like i'm straight out of a bertolucci movie like (laughs) all right let's go this Mm -hmm. movie looks insane like does look insane and yeah you know i mean we've alluded to it we've already kind of brought it up at several points but but you know the the ending is i think really you know where it does then you know get into full satire moment you know the it, it can't end cleanly for anyone here and it, yeah. it it certainly can't be as 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 simple as it's been made out to be right this isn't just simply about a guy who smokes weed discovers hip-hop and then becomes like a great politician it's it's <laughs> it's it's much more complex than that and and as you both have already mentioned like the ambiguity of the ending is is i think another like uh mark uh for this film's brilliance which is that after you know all of this and seemingly that he's dodged all of his assassination attempts he's finally able to sleep to go to sleep and he does sleep for 36 hours he basically misses the entire final like day and a half of the campaign including sleeping through his own like landslide election win but when he wakes up when he finally emerges from his like cocoon, he doesn't come back out in the, you know, basketball shorts and hoodie and sunglasses that he was wearing on national television. He's in his suit again. And that suit is looking very crisp and very clean. And he is once again, glad handing, handshaking and spitting out a bunch of cliches to everybody in the room. And more importantly, he's paying 
attention to no one but his advisors once again. Right. He's he's like not even noticing the home of this black family in South Central LA that he's been sleeping at, you know, he's just sort of like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? Great. You know, I've got to meet with my advisors here. I've got to get back to my headquarters. And it's like that moment of like, Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. Ryan, the guy just needed some sleep, right? Is that the point that it's like, if he had just gotten some sleep, if he'd eaten that pizza from Wednesday, maybe none of this shit would have happened. Is he back to simply being Jay Billington Bullworth, the incumbent senator of California? And then it gets even more complicated because he still invites Halle Berry outside with him in front of the cameras. But it's still, I think, very cleverly ambiguous because it almost feels like he's using her as a prop, you know, or even beyond that, like he's not acknowledging the other people in the room to the extent that he was throughout the movie. And instead he's like, yeah, we have like a thing now, you know, we've, we've developed this sexual relationship. I still want you involved. You can come outside with me for the cameras. And while that's still a bold gesture for him because he is married, um, there's, <laughs> there's still the element of he's not inviting her out to reinforce the values he has been stating throughout the film, but instead maybe it's own, his own selfish purposes that he wants this woman to come outside with him to get in his limo and to just head back with him. Marsh, what do you make of it? Well, I think it's I think it's relatively ambiguous, and we'll never know because yeah. uh, Bullworth gets ironically in the end shot down not by the assassins he hired but presumably by the lurking presence of the health insurance companies paul sorvino who mm. is viewing all of this from afar standing behind a pole and then he's gone uh it's i love just like how that's cut you know it's like mm -hmm. again the the lurking presence of sorvino coming to the fore and it's like yeah you ever you know Beatty's knows a thing or two about american history he knows that capital will murder you you know mm -hmm. like if you threaten profits, if you threaten corporations, uh, they'll kill you. And they all, you know, they often have. Uh, so yeah. uh, there's mm -hmm. that, you know. You know, I also think uh, there's a part of it that is very intentional uh, for Beatty to keep it kind of open ended because it isn't even clear that he dies after no. being shot. You know, he is, as Mar said, he's shot down. Um, but but, you know the movie will end without a sense of, of finality for, you know, Bullworth and, and what happened to him because Beatty did at a certain point, uh, want to revisit this and want to revisit the character. Um, and he wanted to make a movie after 2000 reflecting on Bush's, uh, presidency and, and he had a plan. It was going to be called Bullworth 2000. So I think that there was part of it there in his mind of being like, if I completely kill off Bullworth, I can never like get back into this universe again. I, I, you know, cause that's really what this is. It's, it's, a, it's like a universe he's built that you, you imagine he could then like, uh, you know, he created a playland for himself yeah. In 1998. Warren soapbox, you know? Yeah. Get in. Get, come exactly. along for the ride. 
Exactly. But as you mentioned, you know, the movie then was basically like killed from from being financially successful. And with that, you know, again, you talk about like ghosts and, and last things. I mean, like Beatty made films after this, but this was really like, I think, his last great film, like his last really like his high watermark for his his career. I mean, he never really quite reached anything beyond this following uh, the film's, like, I guess, lack of financial success. And, and yes, being given $30 million to go, like, cut loose, basically, to go just have fun and do whatever the fuck he wanted. So, yeah, I mean, these were our attempted assassinations, Marsh. Did our best to get some people shot down, varying degrees of success, I think. Um, but what about you, when you've tried to have heads of state, political figures shot down in a film? Uh, when have you had the most fun with that? Well, you know, there's there's a lot. Um, I think one one I want to mention that that Andy introduced me to that I think is kind of like a an underseen, just just weird movie, uh, Night of the Generals, uh, from I believe 1976 by Anatole Litvak, uh, and it's like a serial killer film crossed with the plot to assassinate Hitler and uh, Peter O'Toole's in there, and it's just like a very strange movie <laughs> yeah anybody want to see omar sharif play a nazi uh this is your opportunity to see our our great egyptian actor play a a, a german you know intelligence officer during World War II. <laughs> normal stuff yeah yeah and normal uh, stuff. another one that uh, i want to recommend that i assume is, is you know more more underseen than most uh, is suddenly from 1954 a lewis allen film in which frank sinatra and his gang hold a family hostage and attempt to assassinate the dang president of the united states uh, while terrorizing this family and it's one of those like one set movies basically and it is a a gripping uh noir thriller like just a good like nasty sinatra role as well definitely playing against type uh oh yeah that's a good so one Suddenly's a ripper, yeah. you know? It's funny, speaking of assassination and Sinatra, right? Because uh, he makes this movie where, you know, he assassinates the president and people have pointed, you know, to the the Kennedy assassination and stuff like that. And then a few years later, he is in The Manchurian Candidate uh, about, you know, a prominent uh, would-be president of the United States getting assassinated by a, you know, Korean sleeper agent, a North Korean sleeper agent or whatever, Chinese communist sleeper agent. And that film, as you both know, famously had to be delayed because of Kennedy's assassination, his once friend, uh, Sinatra, you know, all over that stuff, all over assassinations, like real and fictional. As yeah, you say, he probably ordered an assassination at one point in his life. Wouldn't surprise it's, me. He certainly uh, could have if he wanted to. <laughs> well, 
you know, I think I'm going to be the assassination victim next week. I will be I will be out of town, and I won't be able to participate in the Gauntlet Studios. Um, so consider that a successful hit for the time being. But I will be back. But you know, in the meantime, my my two compatriots here are going to pull off another spicy little two hander. Um, yeah. So it definitely won't be as. Uh... As seedy as the one that you and I took part in, Ryan, <laughs> but, you know, for our listeners, uh, Marsh and I will be back next week with a little surprise party for a politician who's having a birthday uh, right around now, uh, a 70th birthday party. And I think I'll leave it at that because I think, uh, you know, it'll be better if we just dive into it next week. But Marsh and I are... Uh, for the listeners out there, we're going to be diving uh, into the belly of a certain beast, and I think we're going to have a, a lot of fun next week. So, so join us for a little surprise two-hand uh, birthday party on uh, the Gauntlet. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. It's up to the people to decide what the state of California and the nation will do. Ooh, what do we do? The nation will do. It's up to you. What do we do? What do we do? Well, it's up to you. You know what ain't that funny? You contribute all my money. You make your contribution, then you get your solution. As long as you can pay, I'm gonna do it all your way. Yes, the money talks and the people walk. Yeah, I hear you say it. Big money. 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 Really real. The name of our game is Let's Make a Deal. Now people got their problems, the haves and the have not, but the ones that make me listen pay for 30 second spots. 30 seconds. Yeah. This table over here, Wells Fargo and Citibank, you really very dear. Loan billions to Mexico and never have to fear, cause taxpayers, taxpayers, take it in the rear. Take it in the rear, take it in the rear, take it in the rear, take it in the rear. Yo, over here, we got our friends from oil. They don't give a shit how much wilderness is spoil. They tell us that they're careful, we know that it's a lie. As long as we keep driving cars, they let the planet die. Let the planet die, let the planet die. Exxon, Mobil, the salt is in Kuwait. If we still got the Middle East, the atmosphere can wait. The Arabs got the oil, we buy everything they sell. But if the brothers raise the price, we blow them all to hell. Now let me hear you say it. Saddam. Saddam. Hussein. 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 I want you to get me a phone number. A Dr. Morris Fishman, UCLA. He's at the Department of Psychiatry. Go, get the number now. Get it now. Go.